0: Welcome to Reformed Rakes, the historical romance podcast that will murder your first wife and throw you in the priest hole. I'm Emma, a law librarian writing about justice and romance at the Substack, Restorative Romance. I'm Beth, and I'm on BookTok under the name Beth Heyman Reads. And this week we have a special guest.
1: I'm Andrea Martucci, host of Shelf Love, a podcast and Substack about romance novels and how they reflect, explore, challenge, and shape desire. This week we'll be talking
0: about Mistress of Mellon, written by Victoria Holt, a pen name of Eleanor Hibbert born in London in 1906, decided at a young age she'd grow up to be a writer. Before she took the pen name Victoria Holt, Hibbert had published 30 books in different genres under a variety of other pen names. In 1960, at the suggestion of her publisher, Hibbert penned a story mixing a contemporary feeling of romance with the great gothic tradition of brooding suspense, resulting in Mistress of Melon. The Holt pen name had millions of readers. Publishers kept Holt's true identity a secret to the point where people wondered if Daphne de Maurier was Holt. The Gothic genre and the romance genre have long been intertwined, with similar origins in romances as distinguished from novels in the 18th and early 19th centuries, and manifestations like the works of the Bronte sisters in Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights. The genres came together again in the 20th century, with revivals by authors like Daphne du Maurier in the 30s and 40s and Holt in the 60s. Gothic elements continue to appear in historical romances today, like the Cornwall setting of A Bride for a Prizefighter by Alice Coldbreath, or the mystery elements of romantic suspense. Mistress of Mellon takes place in Cornwall, where Martha Lee newly arrives as a governess to the motherless Alvion. Martha finds Alvion's father, Conan Tremellan, a distant parent. Quote, he gave an impression of both strength and cruelty. There was sensuality in that face, but there was much else that was hidden. Even in that moment, when I first saw him, I knew there were two men in that body, two distinct personalities, the Conan Tremellan who faced the world and the one who remained hidden. Martha finds herself drawn to him, despite the class divide between them. So before we do our traditional plot summary, what are our initial thoughts about this book and sort of our relationship to Gothic and Holt in general? I thought this book was a lot more gentle than
2: I was like expecting it to be. I thought it'd be a lot more supernatural, maybe even, or a lot more tension. But yeah, it's just, there's a lot of scenes of Martha just being integrated into this community that surprised me. And her relationship
0: with Albion was probably, I don't know, the strongest relationship yeah, I think I was expecting it to be a little bit more like the bottom strippers we had read, but it reminded me a lot more of the community stories we've read, like the like Wickerly or A Lady Awakened, where someone new is arriving and has to find their place in the world.
1: For the first half of this book, I found myself constantly wondering if this took place in 1960 or <laughs> some at some point in the 19th century. And I mean I looked it up, and I guess it takes place sometime in the 19th century, and I think that because, because it has a lot of similarities to Jane Eyre, I think it's very easy to imagine that it takes place in a similar time period. I mean, there's trains, so I think it could be any time after. I actually looked up when train lines went in across England, not that I can remember at this moment. I want to say- The 1850s? 1850s is like yeah. Five? 1850s, is, right, right. I started to understand, oh, this takes place- In the 19th century but there is something about the way holt writes martha that does feel like a woman of the 1960s and other than a few context clues i could believe that it took place in a class stratified uk i don't know right right yeah that's true i feel like there are a lot
0: fewer markers of like 19th centuryness, I think it's a big part of contemporary historical romance novels where like you really want to know exactly when they're set. I think it's more and more common for people to even give you a year. So before you even start the plot of the book, you know, whether it's Regency, whether it's Georgian, whether it's Victorian, all mm-hmm. um, oh, that sort of like codified genreness that you want to know what you're getting into. But there are fewer markers in this book. Oh, so much of the setting is atmosphere. It's like vibes mm-hmm. rather <laughs> than I- information. <laughs> Which is going to be a big thing we talk about. This is my pitch to all
2: authors is I want a year in every book. I don't want context clues. I don't want to be looking up which King George or whatever. I just want to know (laughs) what date it is. (laughs) What year are we?
0: I have a friend on TikTok who made a video about It's like you either need a year or you need like an undressing scene. So you know what kind of (laughs) (laughs) undergarments. Like those are the two ways to tell when a historical romance is set. Is is she wearing stays or is she wearing a corset? Right. (laughs) Yeah, I kind of love that. Okay, so Beth is going to tell us our plot summary. Our classic
2: plot summary, which is actually a little bit shorter than normal, so <laughs> I can't tell if that's a good or bad thing. Conan Tremellon hires Martha Lee on as the governess at Mount Melon for his eight-year-old Alvine, who has lost her mother Alice the previous year in a train accident. Alice had attempted to run away with her neighbor and lover, Jeffrey Nanselik, who died in the same accident. When Martha arrives, she finds a grieving girl, although everyone in the house says she's a handful. She's gone through a few governesses. The previous governess, Miss Jansen, had been dismissed for theft. Another important character is the granddaughter of the housekeeper, and her name is Gilly. She had an accident as a younger child. She's the same age as Alvine, and everyone thinks that Gilly has a, quote, tile loose in the upper story. Martha takes her in hand, and Gilly grows fond of her the same way she'd grown fond of Alice. Peter Nancelic the neighbor, flirts with Martha. She doesn't respond to most of his advances, and she befriends his sister Celestine, who frequents the house to spend time with Alvin. Conan Tramellon is a distant father to Alvin, as we mentioned. After a ball one night, Conan kisses Martha. She assumes he's taking advantage and threatens to leave the house. He apologizes and says they can forget it ever happened. As Martha gets closer to Alvine, she eventually calls Conan out on this and tells him how desperate Alvine is to see him. Conan takes her advice and spends more time with his daughter. Martha attempts to keep her feelings for Conan at bay, since Conan's name is attached to Lady Tresslin. Although Lady Tresslin's currently married, it's expected Conan will marry her when her husband dies. One of Alvine's relatives informs Martha that Conan isn't Alvine's biological father, Jeffrey Nancelik was. Alice's lover. Martha understands now the reason why Conan kept his distance. After a Christmas party, Lady Trestland's husband dies on their way home, so she's free to marry. Conan travels to Penzance and then writes for Martha and Alvin to come afterwards. They do, and they bring Gilly. Conan proposes to Martha and she accepts. They then head back to the state to prepare for the wedding. On a whim, Martha writes the previous governess, Miss Jansen, and asks if she would meet with her. They meet up in Plymouth. Miss Jansen shares how Lady Truslin framed her for robbing some jewelry, which resulted in her firing. Miss Jansen says Celestine had a shared interest in old houses and to tell Celestine about some new interesting architecture thing. When Martha gets back, she tells Celestine that she met with Miss Jansen. They go to this chapel together, and Celestine looks around for a passageway she believed a priest would use to hide from the queen's men. A priest hole. When Celestine opens the passageway after they find it, she pushes Martha inside and shuts the passage again. When Martha's locked inside, she discovers Alice's body. Later, Conan finds Martha because Gilly had watched the entire exchange and led everyone there. Martha and Conan marry, and in the epilogue, we find out they had ten children together. We also learn Martha has been narrating the story in the future to her great-grandchildren. Anyway, that was (laughs) the abbreviated version. So we've already covered Hibbert a bit. She was kind of private and didn't give a ton of interviews. Like, she never revealed her age or her maiden name. I think one of the defining things about her as an author is how many pen names she had. From this New York Times article in 1977, she calls them, quote, my ladies. One is Philippa Carr, another Jean Palladi, and the most famous is Victoria Holt.
1: I'm so sorry. When you said she calls them my ladies, I'm instantly thinking about that audio sound. <laughs> These are my the ladies. My ladies. <laughs> <laughs> this one's Philippa Carr. This one's, I call this one Jean Pallady. <laughs>
2: I just thought it was so funny. That's why I had to
1: add it in here.
2: Another thing I found interesting is what she said about her characters so this is quoting from the same New York Times article. The women I read about, she went on, speaking of her romantic Victoria Holt creations, are unusual for their times. They're struggling for liberation, fighting for their own survival. They have no money, no relations, and they can't just bop in a car and get away. They're women of integrity and strong character. These women of mine are going to fight and show the world that women are every bit as good as, and serious as men but they're not going to go popping into every bed they see.
1: How often is that happening in the early 1960s? In these, like, which, which characters are doing that? It's so interesting because everybody thinks that the people of their time are the most modern and that everybody before was so different. But I feel like this conception that her heroines in the 1960s, let's say, are so unusual for the mid-19th century. Right. And I'm like... Are they? I'm not I'm not so sure that they are. And and I think you definitely still see this claim to modernity, but then also pulling back and being like, oh no, but they're not sluts. Right. But I would also this quote could be from an
0: author in 2023. Yeah. Maybe not the popping into every bed they see. I think they would that's like a PR. They wouldn't say that. Though there are quite a few virgin heroines who are not like other girls mm-hmm. in books that are coming out in 2023.
2: <laughs> No, I agree. I feel like I've seen this exact quote of my characters are strong women by lots of authors.
0: Not like women used to be.
2: <laughs> <laughs> right. One of the reasons we wanted to talk about Mistress of Mellon and Victoria Holt, other than we love gothic literature and that she's interesting, is she pioneered the romantic suspense genre. So from this literature article I found, which I'll include in our show notes, called Manus, Monks, and Mutiny, Quote, Holt's novels, often described as gothic romances, were influential as well as successful. Diana Wallace, who has turned serious critical attention to Holt as a historical and gothic author, credits her with developing the modern gothic novel, while the New York Times called her a pioneer in the romantic suspense or gothic genre. Marion Harris remarks that in 1960, no one was writing or publishing novels of romantic suspense, but by the time Holt's fourth novel was published, the phrase romantic suspense had become part of the language and an important category in bookshops.
1: I thought this was interesting. At least one of these articles was from 93, where I wonder, and I'm not sure, if maybe because Mistress of Melon maybe had more staying power, it has started to take on this position as being the first or the first notable book to do this, which is interesting because I've found some sources, especially from the 80s, that don't necessarily say that Mora published in 1959 by Virginia Kaufman was the first, but that it was doing something very similar to Mistress of Melon, And there was this really interesting quote from Love's Leading Ladies, which was a book Catherine Falk put out in 1982 that collected all of the romance writers of the day. And Virginia Kaufman, after this point, went on to write books that are much more legible as romance novels. But when Virginia describes Mora and the plot, it's so funny because she also is positioning it as doing this new thing that hadn't been done before. This is from Love's Leading Ladies. In this story, she took three ingredients of a typical 19th century gothic an evil uncle, equally wicked housekeeper, and innocent niece, and surprised readers with a shocking plot turn. Quote, I made the wicked uncle the hero, their villainous housekeeper the heroine, and the sweetest girl who ever lived the monster. And nobody has ever guessed the solution until the end. It's always been such a shock, she says with pride. So there does seem to be maybe like this jockeying of this idea of who started putting a new spin on the gothic and taking these older tropes and making them new for the mid-century... Reader,
0: yeah, it's also interesting. We talked before we started recording about like the sort of arcs of Gothic. There's Maurier, who Holt gets compared to a lot, like of the Cornwall settings. And Maurier, even though she's a peer to Holt, like they were born, I think, almost in the same year, she starts writing at a much younger age. The Gothic stuff, and so she's more associated with the 30s and 40s, so though she was writing through the 60s. But Maurier really separates herself rhetorically from romance. Like she hated being called romantic author because mm-hmm. she was like, my books don't end happily. A lot of the time, like my (laughs) cousin Rachel is probably her second most famous book after Rebecca, the heroine dies in that it's not a happily ever after. And then I think in Rebecca, I think Demorier would argue that ending is ambiguous, like the house burns down. Yes, they're together, but are they happy? We don't know. It's not this tidy sort of thing. So we have the Gothic tradition that's being revived in the 20th century careening towards the codification of happily ever after and romance this book ends happily and we would definitely call it a romance novel by like modern standards but it, it's coming from a genre that relies on ambiguity especially even in, in its origins like in the 19th century Jane Eyre it's always weird to me when people use Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights as like a distinction like when they're explaining happily ever after they're like Jane Eyre is a romance novel because they end up together. And Wuthering Heights is not a romance novel. Because they are dead at the end. <laughs> which <laughs> which characters have the more satisfying ending for themselves? I would argue that Kathy and Heathcliff being ghosts together is more romantic than Jane being married to Rochester, who kind of sucks. Right. Um, <laughs> They're hunting the Moors like, together. <laughs> right. To me, that's like as happy as Kathy and Heathcliff can get. But it's like you're taking these genre conventions that are not so siloed and strict at any other point, people act like happily ever after is this thing that has to happen for all romance and all of its origins. And it's it's not always been that way. And so I think that, mm-hmm. but we're, this is the moment, we have this 1960 moment where these things are coming together and mm-hmm. confronting each other. But that doesn't mean that we can't retrofit all these things to fit fit backwards for all the gothic origins. Daphne du Maurier would be mad at us if we tried.
1: <laughs> What's funny, Emma, is you just spoiled Wuthering Heights for me. Um, oh, no. You didn't mind Wuthering Heights? <laughs> Correct. I've never read it. I mean, I've heard the song by Kate Bush, but she's a but... ghost in the song. <laughs> oh, is she? Oh, okay.
0: Yeah, like Kathy. I, today to my I know She's
1: she's out. She's outside the window as a ghost. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I mean, like, yeah, the dancing this... just seemed very lively. So, I yeah. But, anyways, yeah. So, look, literally, I, learning new things every day. New surprises. <laughs> I like your interpretation of it, though.
0: Yeah, I'm always trying to argue that Wuthering en- Heights ends happily, and it falls on deaf ears, but. <laughs> I have a question
2: for both of you. As you're reading this book, were you like pulling out like, oh, I can see this is like a clay or I see this author pulled this inspiration while you were reading the book? Did you have
0: any of those moments? I do think the ending feels like a clay Novel. So you may have noticed in Beth's um, plot summary that the ending comes really quick. That was not editorializing by Beth. (laughs) Beth, The the ending does happen very quickly. Yes. Um, Both the reveal of who killed Alice and who's trying to kill Martha, her getting out of the priest hole and then switching to the epilogue, that pacing felt so claypus to me. I don't think people would point to claypus as gothic. I don't hear that word with her, but I think she must be a fan of these. I think she's always trying to deploy the supernatural in her books, and I think people ignore that because it doesn't always work that well. It's sometimes like the thing that falls the most flat in her books, like the wishing well in the Stony Cross Park, like that has magic to it. The ghost with Leo's dead fiancé, I think the ghost comes up in one of the early Hathaway's books. And then he's haunted by her, like the literal ghost, but also the figurative ghost. She does seem interested in sort of supernatural elements that are kind of misplaced in some of her books but she really loves a quick resolution to an external conflict which feels Mm -hmm. very gothic because what in a gothic what you're interested in is like how it's happening and so the resolution is not once we know who's interested in hurting martha that's the mystery yeah Um, not her getting out of the priest hole and also that part isn't even in the action that's all explicated in the epilogue like how she got out gilly watching the whole thing Mm -hmm. we don't see that in the plot which also feels very clepus the epilogue being the explanation for the resolution
1: yeah where i see Claypus using some of the things that we saw in the mistress of melon not because she's pulling from it directly but kind of these echoes is whereas i think Claypus, like the first half or three quarters of the story very focused on the main couple getting together. But then what Clepas does a lot of times in a Black moment or in the third act is all of a sudden there will be this sort of, oh, some mysterious things are going on and who could be behind it? And then there tends to be a kidnapping or a violent <laughs> She has a third encounter. act kidnapping a lot. <laughs> right. And where, where it's like all of a sudden this figure who has been there in the background, like right. Celestine is in this book, all of a sudden Mm -hmm. you you realize additional context that has been kept from you as the reader and from our main characters and it's revealed their malicious intent and they are the obstruction preventing the main characters from having their happily ever after by potentially killing them or keeping them as their sex slave like lady joyce ashby wanted to do with sarah in
0: always getting kidnapped. there was a summer where I only read Lisa Kleypa's books. And I would tell my old roommate about the plot. And she'd be like, who kidnapped who? But I would wake up and tell her the plot of the book. And I was like,
1: yeah, someone got kidnapped. (laughs) Yeah. And there's an author, Susanna Craig, who's writing books right now. The first book in this spy series she has called Who's That Earl? When I read it, I was like, oh, this feels very gothic. Like it takes place in this crumbling castle Mm -hmm. but what it's doing differently is instead of having the brooding mysterious master of the house the heroine is the one who is living in the castle and the mysterious figure and the the hero is the one who comes to her and is trying to figure out a mystery and i think she's she's also trying to figure out a mystery so tonally it has a little bit of that eeriness but also is Definitely a historical romance in terms of its focus, unlike Mistress of Melon, which I think is a gothic first and a romance second. It's Susanna Craig, is that one a dual POV? I think so. I don't think it's first person, which uh, Mistress of Melon is first person, so single POV. I know that was
0: one, the single POV when we read A Bride for Prizefighter, and that was a big thing where it's like, I always say I've never read single POV books. At this point, I've read half a dozen, but (laughs) they still feel like the very small minority for historical romance, but in Gothic, single POV is the norm because you're trying to figure out the mystery. Like that's how Jane Eyre is written, right? Like the single POV first person we're watching through the eyes of Jane Eyre. Also with the distance. So Mr. Melon also is written with this distance. So you're not sure about that until the end. I think there are more narrative clues in Jane Eyre that Jane Eyre is looking back on her life, but that single POV first person is very Gothic. It's deployed sometimes in more traditional historical romances, but often when there is this mystery from one person to the other. If you had dual POV, the reader would be given too much information. So you're really like closely aligned with mm-hmm. Martha in this book mm-hmm. um, because you don't know anything that she doesn't know. Well, that's like yeah. such a
2: mystery thing where it's like mm-hmm. first person because you want limited information and you're only learning it as like the detective or the whoever is learning it. Mm-hmm. And you talked a bit about narrative distance, like Jane Eyre. I think is it ten years. That she's like mm-hmm. writing back on the events. And we kind of talked about how this one feels a little bit more modern, like we couldn't place it. <laughs> and I think it's because there is like a huge narrative distance. Like yeah. she's writing to her great grandkids. It could be conceivably written 1930s, forty. Who knows from that time where right. she has mm-hmm. had to, been able to reflect. In text, she'll say things like, as an impoverished gentlewoman this was like my only opportunity and Mm -hmm. I feel like if you were living it right at the moment you wouldn't think of yourself that way you wouldn't be like I'm Mm -hmm. an impoverished gentlewoman but it (laughs) makes a lot of sense if you're explaining it to your grandkids where maybe that social structure has changed a lot and you need Mm -hmm. to give them those clues of yeah back in my day when I was a governess or that those were my two options I could either get married in which I didn't so I had to go be a governess
0: it, when when characters describe what they look like, it, it feels like one of the it feels like fan fiction always. But yeah. It's oh, it does make sense to tell your great grandchildren what you looked like during right. this like romance period. I of used your life. to have
2: amber hair. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Were you pretty, Grandma? Like,
0: yeah. Yeah. It's very
2: important we you know that she's pretty.
1: Yeah. And in thinking about that first person perspective, I think that connects to some of the reading I did about the gothic genre, which is, which I have not read a ton of gothics. I didn't know a ton about it other than anecdotal things. And so I was reading the chapter in the Rutledge Research Companion to Popular Romance Fiction. And there's a chapter on the gothic romance written by Angela Toscano. And she talked about how this first person perspective was actually a kind of a core part of the gothic. This is a quote from there talking about realism and how there was this bent towards reflecting not just life as it is but the turn that occurred in 18th century philosophy and epistemology towards the perspective of the individual subject because it enacts through narrative the shift from a truth conceived via tradition to a truth conceived by individual observation the novel as a realist form attempts to represent the world as it is for particular persons in particular places And so really like that sense of being within one person's perspective and the world being presented as true according to their perspective apparently is tied really specifically to gothic as a form and realism, um, the tradition of realism that emerged. So many times in this book I felt like Martha was projecting where the way she would talk about a scene really felt like she was projecting her emotional state or kind of her perspective onto another person's actions. At one point, she says, I should have liked to comb my hair and tidy myself a little, but I had a notion that Kitty, the maid, was constantly looking for one aspect of the relationship between any man or woman, and I was not going to have her thinking that I was preening myself before appearing before the master. She is projecting her own anxieties about seeming too romantically interested in the master of the house. And it was like, oh yeah, I bet Kitty thinks I'm going to make myself pretty for this guy. <laughs> and I'm like, did Kitty actually do anything? It's all telling and no showing, which in this, I'm, I don't have a problem with because I think it says a lot about Martha. It's showing Martha's characterization and her perspective, but it's not necessarily telling me anything about Kitty. It's so interesting what England takes from the Enlightenment and what it refuses to take. They still have a king,
0: but they do learn how to write first-person novels. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I actually do think that if we want to talk about the echoes of the Gothic on what becomes what we think of as the romance genre that kind of comes a little bit after this, I think a lot of the really early historical, big epic romances that came out in the 70s and even... The contemporary romances that started becoming much more popular in the early 80s, they're starting from a place of really focusing on that heroine and her perspective and her interpretation of events, and often being confused by what's happening and not sure how to interpret what her love interest is doing or why other people are doing the things they're doing. And then I think that what you start to see over time is you get much more, maybe you might get a glimpse of what the hero is thinking or what other characters are thinking and then we get to the point now where it is much more likely that you're going to have dual perspective like chapters flipping back and forth between both love interests but early romance is definitely foregrounded and prioritized the heroine's perspective much more so than they do today
2: yeah dual pov has not always been a thing i think it started out as much more heroine focused
0: thanks gothics I know. I'm always like, I love dual POV, although we read a single POV and I'm like, oh, I liked this one too. I just like when people are smart about it. I feel like there has to be a reason you're doing either of them. I, I think sometimes the reason for doing dual POV is that's the one everyone does, but there's still so many choices to be made about like, who's telling which part. But in my mind, I'm like, oh, there's less of a choice there with single POV, but obviously you're still choosing that projection. Are we getting Martha's projection on Kitty? Or are we getting what Kitty is saying to Martha, her interpretation? So...
2: I think it's used really well in this book. You had a good example, but that's not the only example. It's fairly frequently throughout the book. She makes an assumption that Alice married the philanderer. Even before she meets him, she is thinking poorly of him. And then when she is talking to him sometimes, yeah, she projects onto Conan a lot. And he calls her out on it, I think, in conversation once. And then I think her
0: sister does too. Yeah, that was one of the first things I noted when I was reading the book. So pretty early on... She's talking about her sister, Phillida, and she's thinking about, like, how is she going to fit into this new house at Mellon? And she's saying, oh, my sister noted that I'm always assuming that people are thinking the worst of me. And it's inviting people to think the worst of me. I really need to work on that. I need to stop assuming what other people are thinking. So I think that's like the clue to the reader. There are going to be some things that Martha assumes that are going to be incorrect because this person, she seems to have a good relationship with her sister throughout the book. And they have a lot of affection for each other that Phillida is giving us an accurate assessment of Martha. And from now on, assessments of Martha from Martha's perspective may be incorrect that people are going to be judging her or misinterpreting her. And I also love the moment on the train when she's with Peter. She doesn't know it's Peter yet. And she's like, how dare you assume that I'm a governess? It's like (laughs) girl You are a governess. A governess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like someone has accurately read you and she gets mm-hmm. mad. It's just,
1: right. People must be assuming the worst of me. Like I'm a governess. Well, you are a governess. Which speaks to her own discomfort with this new yeah. place, new position that she's taking up in life, this new liminal space that she is going to occupy somewhat unwillingly.
2: Well, it's a new social position for her she's never been a governess before and previously she had hopes that she would get married and socially being a governess is a step down Mm -hmm. so she's just trying to like find her place in this new class structure
1: yeah and i feel like you know you just said she had hoped to get married and it's so funny because when i think about what she says about it i don't think she hoped to get married i don't think she was that interested in it obviously for social class positions understood that marrying Mm -hmm. would be a better option than falling down the social ladder, but she didn't seem that interested in the romantic ideas that other women in her position may have about looking for a romantic partner because she's so practical and she's a little cynical and Mm -hmm. she does kind of have a little bit of a chip on her shoulder and it seems like she needs to mature a little bit and isn't ready for those things. And so this novel really does kind of take you through that journey where she does start to be interested in these things that she wasn't interested in before. I feel like that says so much about Martha as a character. I mean, she is positioned in the text as like, she isn't a silly debutante, you know, like she is a little bit jaded and above the pageantry of husband hunting
0: while we're talking about governesses, we can talk about the importance of this work in both the origins of the genre and then also like in historical romance. There are a lot of heroines in the gothics, like sort of original 19th century gothics that are governesses. So obviously Jane Eyre, her employee position is as a governess. Lucy Snow, the heroine of Villette, is also a teacher governess. It's another novel by Charlotte Bronte. Agnes Grey, she's a governess. The Turn of the Screw by Henry James. Governesses populate these like stories of mystery. And I think some of the mystery comes from the ambiguity of the governess role in the household. So this seems to be like a big question in the 19th century is like, how do we treat governesses? there There are all these like sort of educational tracks about what do you do with a governess in the house? How do you treat her? Because people have this anxiety about it. So this author, Elizabeth Missing Sewell, who wrote educational text, wrote, she's not a relation, she's not a guest, not a servant, but something made up of all. And no one knew how to treat her. So in order to be a governess, you have to be educated enough to teach someone, you have to be noble enough to sort of have that access to education so you're different than someone who's like a housekeeper or a maid but you're still being employed you're working for money so there's this shame attached to it and also obviously you weren't able to get married so you're this in-between state and this comes up a lot in Mr. Samelan with both Martha and other people around her it's like where does Martha fit in does she eat with the children does she eat with the family when the children eat with Conan does she eat with Conan Does she go to the ball as a supervisor of the children or does she go to the ball as a guest? And she's always doing these multiple things. And so Sandra Gilbert and Susan Gubar, who wrote Mad Woman in the Attic, the sort of seminal work on 19th century Victorian novels, Identify this ambiguity of the governess as a place for women to transcend the binary imposed on Victorian women. So Angel and Monster in Jane Eyre. Jane is not Blanche, Rochester's paramour that she thinks he's going to marry. But she's also not Bertha in the, the attic. She's in this in-between position. This in-between position also is seen in Mistress of Mellon where Martha doesn't have the privileges of the housekeeper. She's not allowed to gossip about Conan, almost because she has too much access to him. Like when she's asked questions or is given gossip, she has the sense that she's not allowed to reciprocate. She's like, oh, that's something for servants to do. I'm not allowed to do that. Almost because of the intimacy she has with the family, that it would be uncouth to talk about the family. And of course, like servants gossiping is a huge part of the social network of Victorian novels where that's how information gets passed is through servants. But Martha, even though she has this extreme access to the family, doesn't have access to information. And again, that lends itself to her being a gothic heroine because she has to find things out piecemeal. Like she doesn't know when she talks to Miss Jansen, which happens so late in the novel. Uh, Miss Jansen's the other governess that she goes to see, the dismissed governess. Like she doesn't know so much about the house and the family until that conversation that comes so late. Even though anyone could have told her these things earlier,
1: they just chose not to. Yeah, when you were just talking about Miss Jansen, I was thinking about the precarity of the position when it comes to class. And this book is full of doubles, for lots of things. And we'll talk about doubles more later. But I think that Martha is having this identity crisis because she has, as a debutante on the marriage mart for whatever, four seasons, been able to maintain this certain level of class where she could marry somebody of her class and maintain that class. And then she's slipped just a little, like she's not full on into the middle class right she's still in that upper echelon she is good enough to teach the children of the upper echelon and mingle with them to some extent and basically her choices from this point are that she can somehow go up kind of pop back up via marriage which she does eventually do she marries conan and actually has a higher class than she started with as the wife of a man with a title and land and wealth, she can manage that precarity, so she can hold on to being a governess, where she has that class but no power, or she can go down and fall victim to the vices of the lower classes, such as being seduced by somebody and falling. Or when you brought up Miss Jansen, I was like, oh, Miss Jansen is marrying a doctor. So Miss Jansen, even though she's marrying, is basically marrying beneath her into the middle classes of people who are respectable, but they're working for money and she becomes the wife of a doctor, which again, I mean, is fairly privileged in this world, but she's slipped down. So Miss Jansen then I think becomes a double of this alternate path and dangers abound, temptations abound that could make her slip. But yeah, she has to balance that constantly. She has to say no to the gift of a horse. She has to reject the advances. She has to do all of these things so that she can not slip any farther.
0: This is a part of the marriage proposal, right? Like he's like, governesses leave, wives don't. It's like, well, your first wife left, but neither here nor there. (laughs) But he's like you could always leave if you stay the governess because he's like I want you to stay forever and she's like what does that mean and he's like well, I'd like to marry you <laughs> I'm
1: offering you a permanent position as my wife
0: <laughs> I feel like this interesting thing with
2: governesses is cuz they they have this intimacy with the family it does seem like a natural just just move one step over and you just fill the role of like wife and mother mm-hmm. I think it's kind of an interesting thing that you can explore with governesses that you can't really with other
0: social positions or jobs that women do. Yeah, I was thinking about this before we read this and then while I was reading it is how few governess books that I've actually read. I feel like I've read so many more housekeeper books. Like I feel like people oh. who are in- Sort of housekeeper duties and I'm not sure why I feel like that's like plot that if you were to describe a historical romance novel plot titled man falls in love with his governess I feel like would be an easy go-to um, but I haven't actually read that many but I think a lot of times they allied the the fraughtness of falling in love with an employee then so some of them address it a little bit more directly I reread parts of married by morning this morning because I love that book and that's one where they do talk about the the trouble of Leo who's the hero of married by morning being the employer of Catherine. Though Catherine is in disguise in that book, she's actually much more, not noble, but she's higher up than a governor's position would suggest. And so that sort of helps some of the tension with the falling in love with an employee. They're more concerned with how it's going to look than how it actually is, because it's like she's been in the employee of the family for so long. But they are anxious about it being coercive because they think she doesn't like him that much. Leo is seduced to serve it. Stop that. And I think this, it's more of a concern in this book where it's like, But again, she also is concerned about how people are going to look at it rather than the actual coercion. She seems pretty on board with him quickly. Like when he kisses her and then she's like, I have to leave. And his apology is not that good. And she's like, I'm staying. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) She she'd have to be
2: persuaded too much. She is like a governess, but I feel like it's a little bit different because she's brought in to the Hathaway girls because they just have no idea how to act in society and they're older. So she comes in more as like a role model, like yeah. and escort, like when they go out to like a chaperone. Yeah, yeah, I still think she fits that governess mold, but I think it's just like a little bit different, like than I yeah. you would typically see with a governess, where I feel like governesses are normally shut away at a big country estate where. Catherine kind of is integrated into society at times, as the girls mm-hmm. are. So yeah. So it's like, a little different that way, too, which I think is interesting.
0: It's also interesting in these books, obviously, because the, the plot of a historical romance is that they have to fall in love. But the only families that ever have governesses are ones that don't have mothers, which it, I don't think would be the case. Right. Like, You'd have a governess. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, obviously, you would have the governess fall in love with the father of the family or the brother of the family. So there has to be someone missing like a mother figure missing but like I imagine that there were married couples who employed governesses because the mother was doing other things managing the house or didn't want to teach the children or wasn't skilled at it so yeah that's again like the distance between reality of governesses and the
1: way that they work in books right yeah the trope is a trope in romance because Even though statistically, a governess would probably be much more likely to be employed in a house with a married couple. For the romantic fantasy to work, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) the the whole ploy there, just like only one bed, it's basically (laughs) the governess is a forced proximity trope, right? Right. Like, how are we going to get this woman in close proximity to this guy and he has to be somewhat available romantically and from a marriage perspective? So, yeah. So (laughs) there's
2: this kind of where she describes the beauty of every character, like if they're beautiful or not, like it's mentioned. I think this is an interesting case of intention versus results. Pretty much everyone in the literary community agrees. You can really never know what an author's intention is, even if they tell you. And I do think this is something that Hibbert focused a lot on herself, like just beauty, because she said it in New York Times, interview i don't want my readers to picture me as some old hag tapping away and then the journalist goes on to mention like how small and delicate she is this was from the 70s but the result of this holtism makes for interesting reading where you can kind of apply a queer lens to martha or just like to the text in general we've talked a bit about first person but i think first person enhances this quite a bit because we're limited to martha's thoughts so yeah what did you guys think of that
0: well, it, it definitely feels queer in that the beauty is really focused on the female characters. Conan is very vaguely described, just spooky and big, grim. Yeah. Um, but she really languishes over the descriptions, particularly of Lady Treslin, who's like very stunningly gorgeous. And then even Celestine, there's her otherworldliness, her they is is a big plot. And we get a lot of that information.
2: Yeah, the description for Lady Treslin She says in the book, she was very dark and one of the most beautiful women I had ever seen. Her features were strongly marked, and she wore a gauzy scarf over her hair, and in this gauze sequins glistened. I thought she looked like someone out of A Midsummer's Night Dream, Titania, perhaps, although I'd always imagined her fair. I just, yeah, like this description, I'm like, do you like Lady Treslin?
1: (laughs) Do you want to, well I think this question comes up a lot. It's definitely a question in Jane Eyre. It's the do you want yes. to be her or do you want to kiss her. But I wonder if it's really just the self-consciousness and maybe going back to identities, forming one's identity in relation to others around you as sort of comparison points. Because if you think about Martha, there's this thing that happens all the time where she is comparing herself to Alice when she literally is wearing her clothes and she's like it was a bit tighter in the waist. And so you get the sense that, A, Martha is a bit more practical because she doesn't go in for tight lacing, as she tells us. So it kind of casts Alice as a bit more frivolous, maybe also a little bit more delicate and slimmer and less substantial, less maybe healthy and... I don't know, I mean, you can cast a lot of things upon that characterization of how she is positioning herself in comparison to Alice. Lady Treslin is beautiful, but also a seductress right? And yes, she's beautiful, but Martha doesn't want to be that kind of seductive, beautiful. She admires it, but also the book via Martha's perspective is very much casting her as this, I I keep using the word seductive, but like a seductive figure who is going to lure men into something bad, right? Because I feel like Martha does take a certain amount of pride in being a very practical and functional type woman. And I think beauty in this sense isn't always a positive thing. Yeah, I
0: guess it's something to be like suspicious of. And it's also interesting like distinguishing Martha using other people's beauty to differentiate herself. So the queer reading in Jane Eyre is especially her relationship as like a gun girl with Helen Mm -hmm. Burns at the school. But that's like they're very much, like, aligned with each other. Like, they are similar. Like, Helen is beautiful and Jane Eyre is plain. But the way that Jane talks about Helen is that there's this sympathy with each other, that they're the same and that they're peers in the same way. And the, the Helen is, it's like this punishment from God and the family, the Brocklehurst, to pick on Helen because of her illness. And she just is like this person to be like beat down by Earth. She has consumption, which is this very wasting way Illness. And so there's this ambiguity in that she's between life and death. She's sick for a long time and she's going in and out. But Jane sees herself in Helen. And then as she gets older, the distance between her and the women at Rochester's house is greater. Like her distance between, I can't remember the. Child's name in Jane Eyre. The little French girl. The little French girl whose name I think also starts with an A, but now I can't remember what it is. But Rosamund and Blanche, Jane creates like distance between them. But even then, she's like not describing Rochester's body in a sexy way. There's always Mm -hmm. this like discussion in Jane Eyre. It's like, is Rochester hot at all? Probably not. He sounds really scary and stern. He's compared to a bird all the time. And so the way that she emphasizes beauty in women and doesn't have that language for men. And also, like, the queer reading is, I think, an important part of, like, Victorian queerness is, like, sameness. Like, we're seeing Mm. each other as the same, and that's going to be punished, and that's a big part of Jane Eyre. There's also queerness Mm. in Rebecca. That's a huge part that I think doesn't exist in this book because the Mrs. Danvers character, the person who's doing something bad, there's so much more mystery about it. There's hints of Celestine's. Maybe if I reread it, I would notice it more, like knowing how the book ends. Mm. But I feel like Mrs. Danvers is spookier for longer and has this obsession with the first Mrs. De Winter, while Celestine's obsession is with the house. And so that the relationship between Mrs. Danvers and the first Mrs. De Winter, I think, in the book is pretty queer. And then the movie gets more queer coming out in 1940. And then also Daphne de Maurier. Ambiguous about her sexuality throughout her life, like possibly had intimate relationships with women, but also was pretty homophobic in some of her public writings. There's ambiguity about what her relationship to queerness was, but obviously there's queer narratives in some of her novels.
1: What's interesting is is Celestine, even from the beginning, there is a queerness about her, and I don't mean necessarily queerness as in her sexuality, but there's some behavior here that does not fit the norms that we would understand. And also her interest in Alvian seems a little unnatural. And again, I don't mean like sexually, like she is a pedophile, Mm -hmm. but it is cast in the book. Like, why is Celestine so interested in Alvian? Mm -hmm. And she really wants to be around her for what reason? And there's like a weird desperateness to her. I feel like there is I mean, that question of, oh, why is Celestine identifying so much with Elvian, a child, right? Mm. And again, I don't mean that in casting aspersions on queerness, but I think for, like from the perspective of the text and how it's characterizing these people, it does kind of call out this otherness.
2: Right. I guess I kind of saw Celestine's interest in Alvion, where it is like she is over at the house a lot, but then when you find out that she is probably Alvian's aunt, I feel like it's maybe kind of explained a little bit that way. I don't know. I saw it more as her being so desperate (laughs) to be the mistress of this house that she's just worming her way in, like spending all this time with Mm -hmm. Alvion and trying to win over Conan, even though I don't think she cares about him at all. She just wants this house.
1: Right. And well and I would love to come back to that when we t- when we talk about the doubling but when yes. talk- when talking about the bodies I think there is something interesting with Conan as a romantic figure because first of all male beauty standards particularly in the 19th century were very different from male beauty standards of today so in this book which was published in 1960 Conan is described as like tall and gaunt and elegant and That in itself stands in contrast to, I think, some of the markers we would expect to see. Like big, yes, but like muscular and kind of brawny a little bit, right? (laughs) And so hearing him described as gaunt, I'm a little bit like, well, that's okay. Am I supposed to take that as a marker of being attractive? But the descriptions of Conan are so spare and so much of them really just position him as being a figure of romantic interest because of his position of power and authority, Mm -hmm. And he's born into this elegance. There is this essentialism about him and his character where it is just natural that you should desire this man. Like it has nothing to do with what he does. What he looks like is just a reflection of his position of power. So there is this, of course, you're going to think this guy is hot and desirable. But then I think where Martha starts to consider him as a romantic figure a bit, it is much more when she captures that glimpse of his emotions And so it's less of this physical desire, at least at first, you actually read this quote at the very beginning, but this quote where Martha is thinking for a few seconds, I looked into those cool eyes and I thought I had fleeting glimpse of the man behind the mask. I was sobered suddenly. And in a moment of bewildering emotion, I was deeply conscious of my loneliness of the tragedy of those who are alone in the world with no one who really cares for them. Perhaps it was self-pity. I do not know. My feelings in that moment were so mixed that I cannot even at this day define them. And there's a flash of something, but then the rest of that is her projecting her own feelings onto him. But it's almost like she sees an opening to do that where she didn't before. I'm not exactly sure what my point is here other than... There does seem to be something about her attraction to him. He is presented as this rakish, powerful figure that is unattainable to her. And then she's like, oh, he does have emotions. Oh, we are the same. We both have the same loneliness. (laughs) Like, and she starts getting all like that. She's fascinated by him. She's curious about him. There's like a preoccupation. He looms large in her mind. I wanted to talk about the reforming of this rake, because I was curious what you rakes thought about kind of we're the original reformed drakes obviously. <laughs> yes you are the original reformed breaks you could decide to allow right. conan into your ranks but what actually reformed him from being interested in lady treslin as his lover and then he's like well now i'm in love with you martha and now i will get all of my emotional and sexual satisfaction from you what made martha so special to him Well, the turning point is Alvian's accident, right? Because Martha's also pushing back on him. Like,
0: you need to show up for this girl who's in your house, whether she's your daughter or not. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be his turning point. It is a little funny when she's like, you were sleeping with Lady Treslin pretty recently. And he's like, well, I'm going to be loyal to you now forever. It's like, okay. Um, (laughs) I believe you, I guess. But I think that's like the sort of holistic person that can come into his life. It's like if Alvian is in his life, Lady Treslin no longer fits. She's not mm-hmm. going to be the mother. And oh, he has this duty to Alvion that he he now recognizes as distinct from what he once thought it was. He thought that keeping his distance from her would protect her. Because I think he does care about her the whole book. He just doesn't know what to do with her. So Martha's pushing back on him. I think that someone doing that is um, a turning point for him. And I think his, his relationship with the girl is the thing that The proposal is predicated on. He says it would be good for me. It would be good for Alvian. Would it be good for you? So I think that sort of unit family is the point for him.
2: Yeah, I feel like how he initially defines, he's like, well, this girl, I have given her food and shelter and here's your education. He redefines that later after the accident. And I think it's important
1: that Martha isn't there when it happens. And I'm so sorry. I kept trying to jump in because Emma, what you were saying, I was like, okay, so he was a rake who is only interested in hedonic sexual pleasures, like the pleasures of the the flesh. That's the only interest he has in women. And then suddenly he's like, I should be a father. (laughs) And then suddenly integrates not just his interest in women for sex, but, oh, I need a domestic woman who will take care of my home and take care of my child that I've suddenly decided I care about and take care of my emotional needs and take care of my physical needs. And that's what reformed him. So, well, yeah, I think maybe I have a more generous reading towards Conan than, than that
0: description. Where I think he talks about, he's like, I thought what I was doing was what was best for Alvian because I wasn't sure if I could love her because I, like, I knew she wasn't my child. He didn't think it was an available emotion to him. He's like, Alice and I lived separate lives. Like, I knew she loved Jeffrey. We married because we had these houses next to each other. No, he came
1: from somewhere else. She had a house that then he would get and it was right. like, it was a property transfer.
0: And also he and Jeffrey, they reference the Duat de Seigneur, which is like just one of the
1: most gross
0: concepts ever. He was like rakish. He's sleeping around with all these women in the town. And he just understood that Jeffrey was also going to be doing that. Also, would you get to the end of the novel and realize Alice is not evil? She's this tragic character. You have more understanding, I think, of Conan, where it's like they were sort of pushed into this situation. Both of them could have led to tragedy. Conan escapes that tragedy by Martha coming in. And fixing things. But I don't think he doesn't care about Alvian. He just doesn't know what to do with it. And it's easier to bury his head in the sand. And I think Beth was saying, and he does come to that conclusion on his own. To some extent, I need to figure out what to do here. Martha is just the solution that's present in the moment. This will unite things. And I love like Alvian's reaction to the proposal when she tells Alvian, oh, I'm going to marry your father. And Alvian like smiles but then suppresses her smile because like, <laughs> oh. Alvian's excited that she's going to have Martha as her mom and she's like, "What do I call you?" and they go through the
1: discussion, which I thought was cute. I have an 8-year-old and she refuses to express any emotions to me except under duress, so I understand that completely. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Albie is so normal. We
1: Beth and I, were I know about this
0: when we started reading it for the first time. Everyone's like, Alvian you're just going to have a lot of trouble with that girl and its every reaction she has is so normal." Like I for an her mom died. Yeah. Give her a break. <laughs> yeah.
1: It's like Like, a girl child. (laughs) Yeah, she's eight. Well, okay. So, does Conan love Martha, and if so, why? According to this book. (laughs) I think what's
2: funny about that is like in the epilogue. Maybe it's just because Martha's looking back on her life that she'd be like, "Yeah, we had a lot of ups and downs. (laughs) Like it wasn't perfect."
0: (laughs) That's what she leads with. (laughs) Hey, we got married. Oh yeah, it was it was kind of (laughs) hard. I don't know. (laughs) I think this is especially true for books that are fixated on houses. Love is one piece of the pie, right? Yeah. (laughs) You got to fix the house. You got to fix the estate. You got to fix the family. And of all those pieces are together, love is like a byproduct of that. And I think that's the worldview that this novel takes. Martha is the right mistress of Melon. Mm -hmm. It's not Celestine. It's not Alice. Martha is the right person to be in this house and to fix it. That's the overarching thing. Which maybe is what makes us a gothic instead of a romance. I think houses are so important to gothics. Houses often don't make it to the end of the gothic. The house burns down in Jane Eyre. It burns down in Rebecca. They leave Wuthering Heights and Wuthering Heights to go to Thrushkosh Grange. And so it's like, how do we how do we fix the house? We're either going to destroy the house or something major has to change. And I think Martha's that change. And because Conan, all of his attraction is connected to the house. Conan is the house. That it's those two things make Martha... She's right. Love is like a byproduct of the whole thing. Since we're already kind of talking about houses, I think
2: it's like a good time to talk about the dual estates because you said either the house has to like burn or it has to be (laughs) fixed. And I think Mm -hmm. it's fixed kind of weirdly in the epilogue. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if we've mentioned this yet, but there's like a dual estate. Like there's these two neighboring houses where the Nan live, Mount Witted, and then we have Mount Melon, obviously. So here's a description from the book. This is Martha speaking. This house, Mount Melon, sounds as though it's on a hill. Well, it is, built on a clifftop, facing the sea, and the gardens run down to the sea. Mount Melon and Mount Widden are like twins, two houses standing defiant-like, daring the sea to come and take them. But they're built on firm rock. So there are two houses, Martha said. We have near neighbors. In a manner of speaking, Nancellix, they who are at Mount Widen, have been there these last 200 years. They be separated from us by more than a mile, and there's Melon Cove in between. The families have always been good neighbors until, and then there's cut off onto. He won't say what, why they are not good neighbors anymore. So I just, I think it's interesting. They're described as twin houses, and then in the epilogue we learn that one of Martha's. So the house gets sold, like it falls out of like the Nancellix possession, and then Martha's daughter ends up marrying the owner of Mount Witten. And then Martha describes Mount Widden as as dear to her as Mount Melon at that point in her life. So I feel like this is the solving that happens, even though it's in the after and in the epilogue that like these two houses do eventually come together, even though it's a long time after Martha
0: and Conan get married. So the idea of the devil comes up a lot in this, like a very gothic things, like Wuthering Heights. Again, like I mentioned, like there are two houses in Wuthering Heights. There's Threshcross Grange and Wuthering Heights. And people are always going back and forth between the two. People being in the wrong house is like a source of anxiety in the novel. And the idea that you have to be in the right place and the right people have to be in charge of the right place. And then I guess also the doubling comes up in a sort of micro level, too, with the characters, like that Martha is doubled with Alice. And how often she's in Alice's role and how even before she actually becomes the mistress of Melon, she takes on her clothes and her room and her relationship with the daughter that she's taking on this like ghost figure. And then also it almost ends up in the same fate as Alice by being locked in the priest hole. Which also, if you're going to commit murder, don't do it the same way both
1: times. That's how you get caught. (laughs) Yeah, right. Change up your methods, (laughs) Celestine. Right, right. Before I talk more about doubles, in prepping for this episode, I brought up an essay that I actually really like called Somebody's Trying to Kill Me, and I Think It's My Husband by Joanna Russ. It was published in, I believe, 1972, and it was about the modern Gothic. So writing at a time where all of the books that followed Mistress of Melon have come out and it's reached a point of incredible saturation, right? Where now there's been all of these simulacrums of the original Mistress of Melon. And I actually like this essay for several reasons. And Emma, I know you have some issues with it. And so I was thinking about it a lot. Like, huh, how come my takeaway was kind of different from yours, Emma, in particular? And the more I was thinking about it, the more I think Joanna Russ's observations are accurate and the patterns that she's talking about are accurate, but my interpretation of what that means may be different from what Russ thinks they mean. So I read her analysis and I'm nodding along more so because I find it like useful to think about it as a framework more so than agreeing necessarily with all her takeaways. So it's something Joanna Russ talks a lot about, she talks about this concept of doubles and really how they work to show what is appropriate, like appropriate womanhood and heroism and like the right way to be as a woman. And I don't necessarily see these patterns as being an indictment against the characters or the women of the time who are reading this. And I I shouldn't just say women, but it is understood primarily cis female audience reading this. I think the reason the patterns are interesting is because it says something about the world they're living in and not that they're limited in these ways, but the world is trying to limit them in these ways. And so they're interested in thinking about and exploring these things repetitively over and over again, which is where we get the repetition of the format in like all the gothics that came out. So when you see this doubling of, okay, we have these other models of womanhood, we have Lady Treslin and she is conniving and she uses marriage wrong therefore she can't be the wife and she can't be the mother. Alice was also not right. She was seduced by this superficial flatterer and she didn't uphold that chastity that was expected before marriage to come in as like the good woman and good wife. And so she paid for that by being killed. And then the maids are low class. They're a little too sexual, according to Martha. And Jennifer, which is Gilly's mother, she also fell for this seducer, which showed that women of all classes fall for these seducers and it's a danger to all women. Again, yeah, you can kind of go on with like the inadequate mothers, right? Like Celestine is pretending to be nurturing, but she doesn't actually care about being a mother. She's grasping. She wants the house and on and on. Whereas I think the text does position Martha as she is interested in the house after she's married, which is like the right time where you can kind of start to think about taking on these domestic duties. She's not cast as acquisitive. She does want to marry Conan, but she isn't going to fall for seduction prior to a marriage proposal. Yes, it is saying, okay, this is the right way to be a woman, but I don't necessarily see that as Victoria Holt's author's perspective. I see that more as like really just reflecting what society is saying and that is what is going to be of interest to readers I don't know feel free to disagree challenge I guess,
0: me I, guess, <laughs> I, mean, I think the distinction is I don't know if Martha's womanhood is universally right I think it's mm. right for Melon, like it's right for Mount Melon. that's the distinction maybe that I'm seeing because I don't think the book comes hard again with a single POV like Lady Treslin even, I don't think the book hates her. I think Mm. it's interested in her. It's like she, but she's Mm -hmm. not right for Mount Melon. Because of these added aspects of it, the way she fails as Mistress of Melon is that she would not be a good mother to Albion. But she's not right for this. But I don't think it hates her. She doesn't get punished in a way that women who sleep outside of marriage do. She just doesn't get the house. And even Celestine her bad actions are explained away, not super sympathetically by Martha. She ends up being hospitalized after her trial for Alice's murder, which that's its own sort of punishment in the 19th century. But it's explained that there's something wrong with her. She has an illness. It's something more subtle than just outright evilness, like this obsession with the house. I don't think you can universalize Martha's womanhood. I'm thinking, imagining like dovetailing, like she's just right. She just fits. And I think that's what Cotton's proposal points out. It's like why wouldn't I propose to you? Because like, this just makes so much sense. I think we're like right here. I'm gesturing mm-hmm. that Andrea and I are are next to each other <laughs> in <is> our <laughs> assessment. We're yeah. a visual metaphor, yeah. which is not really on a podcast. You agree. Yeah.
1: Same. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I guess the one thing I would think about that though is she's right for Melon, but if this same pattern persists across a bunch of texts, where essentially that same sort of pattern of certain markers of like good femininity versus not right, if that kind of persists across books in different contexts, it's kind of like, hmm, what's going on there? But again, I mean, I agree with you that I don't think the book casts, unlike Clapis, the doubles as malicious. I mean, like right. some of them are really sympathetic figures. I think Lady Treslin, she's kind of a nasty lady. She gets what's-her-name fired, the previous governess, and Celestine set her up for that, Mm. right? Because Celestine actually stole the bracelet and then set what's-her-name, the the previous governess, up. But yeah, no, I don't don't think the book hates them, but it does kind of, it, it positions Martha as the best option in comparison to them and their choices.
0: And I guess the, I'm just thinking about the doubling again. I think Martha and the house are doubled. I think Mm. there's so many aspects of Martha in the house. So one of my favorite parts of the house is the peeping aspect and how that's like the, one of the most Gothic elements of the house throughout the book that comes up earlier than the peeping is actually part of the plot. There are all these ways to look through different rooms, looking inside of different rooms. The house invites people to look into rooms, but not enter them. Again, like, Martha as the governess in this ambiguous position where she's watching intimacy but not a part of it is like the house in that way. Like, she is looking inside the family and she's right for Mistress of Melon because she's never going to ask for more than that. Like, she becomes part of this family as this, like, manager and this emotional manager of Conan and Alvian's relationship. She's like the house. Celestine is obsessed with the house, but Martha, like, is the house. Right. This is, like, a point we were (laughs) – we will touch
2: on – where there's a lot of, especially at the beginning when she's talking to the housekeeper, Miss, Mrs. polgray where she's like, this is your part of the house. Designated rooms, she like shows her other parts of the house, but makes it very clear. I'm just showing you this, but you're not expected to be here. So yeah, I I agree with that a lot. It's
0: Martha is this house. Yeah. When I was first reading the book, I think I texted Beth and was like, so much of this book is about setting boundaries. And it's like Martha learning what are her boundaries as a governor. So we talked a little bit about that in her, like the work discussion, but Martha realizing this is where I'm allowed in the house. This is what I'm allowed to say. This is what I'm expected to do. That's not intuitive for her. That's so much of her internal dialogue is thinking, okay, I've just gotten this piece of information. That means this for my role in this house. And so she's always like interpreting Where is she supposed to be? What's she supposed to do? And she's interested in learning those boundaries and not being like master. Also, she will set a boundary. That's a big part of what makes her a good governess with Alvine, She's saying, this is the time that we do our reading. I don't care if your father's home. I'm going to be the disciplinarian because that's my role as governess.
1: Right. Well, and I guess that, I, I, I don't want to say policing of boundaries, but highly aware of boundaries. I think that's what's interesting as a reader even today, but also particularly to the readers of this time is that we live in a society that has a lot of messages about what women should be like, right? And so if you are somebody who grows up with this understanding that you are responsible for maintaining these boundaries and behaving in a particular way and always being aware of how other people perceive you and like always strike the balance of don't be too helpless but don't be assertive don't intrude on anything but also don't be a a dependent that you know is a strain on anybody (laughs) right like always do the right thing in every single situation I think that there really is a fascination and and I look this is what I enjoy about romance novels is I think thinking about them through the lens of kind of a fascination with thinking about how you manage your way through the world and your your way through relationships with other people. That's interesting to me. I guess that's what it feels like it's doing, is it's this preoccupation with not a self-centeredness, but inhabiting the role of the main character of the story and really thinking about the world and life through their eyes, through their perspective, right? Seeing a room through the peepholes, perspective instead of being in the room all the time, which makes it really interesting and fascinating to go through that perspective.
2: Yeah, I would say a big thing in the Gothic is boundaries and violating boundaries, Mm. like societal boundaries, especially I'd say is more like Gothic. So you have murder, violence, theft, incest. There's all these things where it's like societally we say you should live within these boundaries, but the Gothic is interested in what happens
0: when you transgress those boundaries. Right. I guess which transgressions get punished and which ones don't, too. Because yeah. it's like Alice, is, she, she's a huge transgressor of boundaries. I also could see Alice being the heroine of a different book. Yeah. Like this marriage of convenience running off with Jeffrey. The Jeffrey is not heroic in any way. I also want Peter to be the hero of a book. I just love Peter. I've not said this yet. <laughs> Peter is the other person who's vying for affection for Martha. And I was so charmed by him. I kept waiting for the other shoe to drop and waiting for him to be evil. But mostly he's just kind of a good time guy <laughs> he goes he's, very, to yeah.
1: he's very so. good natured he doesn't get surly about rejection right. or disappointment right. yeah he's yeah, just he, gonna try
2: again like right. sure.
0: i think mostly he's disappointed when she gets married it's like oh they're not going to get a new governess for him to seduce right like, <laughs> it's like mount melon was providing him like this string of governesses to flirt with but he doesn't right. have anymore so he has to go to australia
2: I'm always wondering what will compel one of us to write fan fiction. And I just want to add the running total. So maybe in <laughs> One World, we'll have a, a fan fiction about Peter in Australia and right. how he meets his wife.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think that the text, con- yes, it constantly has people transgressing. And then the book is like, okay, and then what's going to happen when they transgress? Yeah. So Conan transgresses by kissing the governess and she's like, boundary. And he's like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Like, okay, good to know that boundary is there. Peter good-naturedly keeps pressing against this boundary, see if he can transgress it. Jeffrey, don't rest in peace, rest in miss peace yeah. <laughs> whatever. He was constantly pressing. And then what the book shows is what happens when women in this text allow men to transgress in that way, how they are the ones who are punished. Jeffrey isn't punished except by maybe deus ex machina train accident. Whereas I think society punishes and leads to the downfall of all the women who transgress, right? Like Jennifer, who's Gilly's mother, she was knocked up by Jeffrey. And the shame was too great. And she dies by suicide. Alice didn't love the house enough, according to Celestine and had to be, you know, gotten rid of. Celestine transgressed by obviously killing people murder murder uh, (laughs) and other things (laughs) right right and I did want to talk about so so Celestine is described as somebody with a mental illness and there is this villainy ascribed to mental illness which is problematic very similar to the wife in the attic from Jane Eyre where the characterization in the text is oh she was mentally ill and therefore she wants to hurt people And in real life, we understand that people with mental illnesses are much more likely to be hurt by other people than to be the one harming and transgressing. I think that's maybe a place where I would buy Celestine as she could have been given a bit more agency. And Victoria Holt, if I could send some notes to Victoria Holt in the past, like, hey, maybe just make her actually villainous. I'd be fine with that. She doesn't have to be mentally ill. But I think that's something that like with... Hindsight, we're like, mm, that's a troubling trope to continue to create that narrative that mental illness is villainous and a transgression.
0: Yeah, I do wonder. So, I mean, think about Madwoman in the Attic and Bertha specifically, with the first person narrator, both in Jane Eyre and Mistress of Melon, I think you could read both of them. Again, we're not sure about like authorial intent, but I also will never know. There have been definitely like interpretations of Bertha. She's not mentally ill. She's been punished. For not falling in love with Rochester for her mixed race identity. She maybe had some mental illness that then becomes exacerbated by being put in the attic and like that drives her <laughs> to violence. Isolated. Um, like that'll do it. Um, and similarly with Celestine, it's like her mental illness, whether it is real or not, it's like it does make sense to me that a, a gentry woman who's murdered someone would be hospitalized rather than punished in another way. And because we only have this one perspective of Martha, who's not particularly sympathetic to Celestine, she even says, I think Celestine was faking it for a while, but then she's hospitalized for 20 years. I think that there's still some ambiguity there about whether we're ascribing the violence to mental illness, or this is like an accurate representation of what would happen to someone, a woman who was convicted of a murder. Like, she's not going to go to jail or be punished or transported. She's going to be hospitalized or institutionalized, which is not, also the gap between prison and hospitalization narrow. I mean, similarly with Bertha, the most generous reading to Rochester possible is that like the keeping her in the house was not great, but better than institutionalizing her because of the institutional violence that she would have had if she had gone to the mental hospital in the 19th century. I think that's maybe too generous to Rochester, but that's the Jane Eyre perspective of you're trying to read Rochester still as hero and not as like violent husband. So I I think there is ambiguity with both of those characters about whether the reader has to interpret them as mentally ill, but also it's like not that mental illness causes violence, but the mentally ill people can be violent like anyone else. And there also is a an explanation for this lack of reality that they're occupying. For Celestine, she does have these obsessive characteristics with the house that she's almost like violently obsessed with the house. Whether that source is mental illness or evilness, it's just an an explanation.
1: Okay, Emma, I buy. What you just said, if we consider that the text gives us the option of understanding society as having diagnosed Celestine as mentally ill, because a noble woman, that would make sense in like the 19th century. Oh, she did this bad thing, therefore she must be mentally ill. And as a noble woman, the way we deal with that is we institutionalize her, right? And the text does cast doubt on the veracity of that actually being the case so actually i get that whereas jane Eyre, the text and, and again there are other texts that say well, i take issue with the way jane Eyre characterized bertha and actually if we think about this from another perspective it could be a different story but within the text perspective bertha is mentally ill right i think and, the question but, is and, more like, right but what it's is diff- the source yeah. is it yeah it, he is how, an unreliable how sick narrator was she wouldn't put her in the attic <laughs>
0: because i think it's So much of her behavior stems from that isolation. It's like, they characterize her sometimes things like PMDD or like bipolar, whatever we're casting Bertha with. Also like whether her violence is coming from her mental illness or her isolation and her abuse. I think that's also ambiguous in the text. I think you can say Bertha is definitely mentally ill, but I don't know if the one-to-one connection between violence and mental illness is there because we do have that limited Jane Eyre perspective. I think you can read that book without even like the post-colonial readings of it just from the text be like okay like, what's making her violent is it the isolation and the abuse that she's suffering which is explicit whether it's sympathetic abuse or or not which jane <laughs> is sympathetic to but the reader doesn't have to be final thoughts on this book it's a quick read people should read it like it's compelling and short and it's good i really liked martha i did not expect to like her as much because i just had an image of her as being like plain First person perspective character. I feel like it's, it's she's she's all doing all this projecting. So I was like, imagining I was also like going to be projecting onto her, or, like she was going to be this blank slate. But she has more personality than I anticipated.
2: Yeah, I found her very sympathetic. And all the times she was like assuming, like what other people were thinking about her, I'm like, this is relatable. This is very relatable. <laughs> yeah,
1: I am really glad that you all wanted to read this book because it is a book that I had heard about a lot and i definitely have a tendency to think about older books and i'm like oh gosh is it going to be interesting to me as a modern reader just because there's different expectations for books today like some older books i find get really long-winded and i'm like i just don't have the attention span for this get to the point what's happening just tell me what's happening and i really enjoyed this book really enjoyed martha as a character I thought she was really interesting. I thought the story was really interesting. I I think Miss Holt is a very talented writer and has a great career ahead of her. Um, (laughs) You know, (laughs) I think it's also very interesting to think about. We are romance podcasters. And so obviously our underlying project here is to think about this in the context of modern romance. I do think it raises some interesting questions. And Other people who like romance today, whether you think you like romantic suspense or not, it's a book worth reading and checking out and seeing what you think about it.
0: Yeah, I think as far as like grandmothers of the genre go, this is an easy read. I think sometimes people are hesitant to read some of the bodice strippers from the 1970s. Maybe you just aren't in the mood for that or don't want to read a bodice ripper. This I think you could read and see so many threads of it in the genre. And it's like such a good... Touch point, and obviously it has these threads that come out in so many different places and is this bridge between early 20th century and late 20th century so I think it would be like a good part of your mental map of romance I think that's that would be my selling point for it thank you so much
2: for listening to reformed rakes if you enjoy this podcast you can find monthly bonus episodes on our patreon at patreon.com slash reformed rakes you can also follow us on twitter and instagram for show updates the username for both is at reformed rakes Thank you again, and we'll see you next time.